Hey, y'all. Um, welcome to RUF. My name is Simon Stokes. And uh, if you don't know, we're a campus ministry here. Uh, it's a Christian campus ministry, and we are not a group of like super put-together people. I'm certainly not that person. Um, we're people who really need Jesus. And whether you're someone who's a Christian or someone who's not a Christian, you find yourself here with us tonight, welcome. We, we really do believe that all of us really do need Jesus, and so we're glad we're here, you're here with us tonight. Um, I'm starting a uh, sermon series in the book of Acts. We've been doing kind of a short series on community. Last week was a one-off on love because it was Valentine's Day. And I was going to shamelessly exploit that. And uh, it's just what you do in campus ministry. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but this week we're actually starting a sermon series on the book of Acts. And if you don't know anything about the book of Acts, that's totally, totally fine. Um, for tonight, all you need to know is that there are the first four books of the New Testament are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the Gospels. And then the book that comes after that is Acts. And it's a continuation of Luke's Gospel and the story of the early church and what God was doing through the early church um, through the work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So uh, we're in the book of Acts tonight. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Let me read this and I will pray and get going. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days, and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Uh, Lord Jesus, we do pray that you'd be with us tonight. Lord, that you would help us to know you um, really and truly through your Holy Spirit. Lord, that um, you would guide us in truth, you would guide us in love, to love this place, to love our neighbor, to love you. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. What am I here for? What would it mean for me to have a good life? Am I doing enough to get that sort of life? Y'all, those are questions that y'all ask yourself all the time. I read a recent New York Times article about a class on happiness that's being taught at Yale this semester. And when it was initially offered, 300 people signed up for it on the first week. A week later, 1,200 people had signed up for it. It's the largest class, I think, in Yale's history, which is a pretty good indicator that maybe you've touched a nerve on campus when you've created that class and that kind of thing happens. But one of the first-year students taking the class gets interviewed by the New York Times, and she said, the fact that a class like this has such large interest speaks to how tired students are of numbing their emotions, both positive and negative, so they can focus on their work, the next step, the next accomplishment. So don't enjoy life too much, don't be too sad with life too much, just work. The teachers running the class said that she thought it was so popular because in high school, all these kids who wanted to get into Yale and had to like really grind and they put off having fun and being irresponsible or just relaxing like some of their you know, less motivated friends. And that for them, there'd always been another thing to do. And then they go to Yale 
And they made all of these terrible habits of work and stress and built those things in their life. And they made it, but they weren't happy about it. And they got everything they wanted, and they were miserable. And they wanted to get better. And you read that, and you think, man, good thing that's only Yale. <laughs> no, that's everywhere. Uh, <laughs> but you could, call, you could call that a lot of things, right? Like you call it stress, anxiety, maybe the need for like a better work-life balance. That's what we usually call it. But maybe a better way to think about it would be to say that people were made to live life in a certain way. We have a purpose, kind of a plan or a paradigm that we were created to kind of live into. And when we step out of that purpose, we run into major consequences. Depression, anxiety, burnout, addiction, feeling trapped in making decisions that we know are bad, but not knowing a different way to make decisions. And we run into those things and it can feel like, I did everything right that people told me that I needed to do, and I'm still deeply unhappy. Like, if that wasn't my purpose, then what was my purpose? How would I know? To that question, the whole of the Bible is answering that the purpose of a person's life is to know God and to enjoy Him forever. Everybody's unique. Everybody's got different gifts, different kind of possibilities. Some of those gifts are larger than others. But at the end of the day, all of our purpose is the same. To know God and to enjoy Him forever. And what I want to ask tonight is, is ask, what does that mean? I mean, is Christianity about all the stuff that God has done for me through Jesus? Yes. All right? Okay, but if I'm a Christian, am I also supposed to be, like, missional? Like what Jesus is talking about here, too? Yes. Okay, then how is this not another thing for me to do that just happens to be, like, really spiritual? Because I'm already grinding on kind of a lot of stuff at this point in my life. What I want to suggest to you tonight is that your purpose of knowing God and enjoying Him is tied to mission. That you really can't do one without the other. And being missional and fulfilling your purpose of knowing God and enjoying Him really do go hand in glove. So tonight, I want to talk about three things from this text. I want to talk about three things. I want to talk about the evidence of mission. I want to talk about the scope of mission. I want to talk about the hope of mission. I couldn't get them all to rhyme, I know, but... Evidence, scope, hope, maybe next week. I don't have it all together. That's fine. Uh, <laughs> so what's the evidence for mission? Look at the verse here, that's, uh, the verse 1 that Luke starts off with. The word began. Luke is saying that everything that we're going to study in Acts is not done apart from Jesus' work. Like he just kind of did his thing and left. But everything in Acts is a continuation of Jesus' work. Luke is telling us that Jesus' work didn't end with the resurrection. It changes in a significant way. He ascends into heaven. He rules besides the Father. He's not finished with the world. In many ways, he's just beginning. But this is a continuation of what he's done and started in the Gospels. Look also at the way that the first few verses are centered around the events that have come right before. Verse 3 here says, He presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. Okay, whether you're reading Luke's gospel or you're reading Luke's account of the acts of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, you have to be impressed with the fact that he's very consciously writing history. In his gospel, he puts names, dates, places, the events that happen. In Acts, he does the same thing. The early church, we are sometimes told, has 
was not very interested in history. It has its own agenda. It's trying to kind of twist things and make things kind of work within its brand of faith. Bart Ehrman has made a lot of money kind of pushing that. But if your faith is supposed to be based on history, like what Luke is saying here, then you have tons of interest in how things actually happened. In one of his letters, the Apostle Paul says, let's just get down to brass tacks. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Like if this isn't reliable history, let's just pack it up. What are we doing here? Like the New Testament is super aware that this needs to be historical for it to make any sense. And it's making that claim right from the get-go. All right, I'm going to put on my teaching hat for a second here. Bible scholar William Lane Craig says the best way to determine whether something happened or not is to begin with the evidence available to us and then infer what, if that were true, would provide the best explanation for that evidence. So in other words, we need to accept an historical event if it gives the best explanation for the evidence that surrounds it. Which means that any theory about Jesus and the resurrection has to account for the evidence that surrounds it. Because if that stuff isn't true, then why do mission at all? And so the evidence is... The tomb in which Jesus was discovered is empty. It was found by a group of women following the crucifixion. Jesus' disciples had real experiences with someone they at least believed was the risen Jesus. And as a result of the preaching of these disciples, which had the resurrection at its center, the Christian church is established and grew like a weed. Okay, think about those things for a minute. First, women in New Testament times we're not even allowed to be witnesses in court trials. Like that's certainly not, you know, the opinion here, but for the sake of cultural context, that's what it was. So if that's the case, why would the gospels have women as the first eyewitnesses of Jesus? Like why not a Roman guard, like a religious, pious Jewish man? Only if you were super concerned about telling actual history would you be writing in the 1st century and say women found Jesus. Because it was not something that most people when they read it would think was very credible. And they put it in there because they're very concerned because this is what actually happens. Okay, second, you know, I completely recognize that just because the disciples think they saw Jesus raised from the dead doesn't mean it actually happened. I think it happened, but, you know, I'll give the, the possibility that, you know, maybe they were lying, maybe they're hallucinating. But if that was the case, then why would they lie? Like, if you... If you made up something, would you die for it, especially if you knew that it was completely false? If you made it up, would you die for it, especially knowing that you're getting no money? You're getting scattered to the winds of the empire, that your family and friends are going to disown you for this thing? Like, why would you make this up? Because all, like, 10 of the 12 apostles get executed. One of them, Judas, commits suicide. And then the 12th, John, is exiled to an island where he spends the rest of his days. Like, nobody gets anything for being Jesus' disciple. Why would you lie about that then? Usually when you lie, you want to get something out of it, right? Okay, it's a hallucination then. That doesn't really make sense of what the, disciple, what the Gospels are talking about either. They say, they say that Jesus ate and drank with them. He spent 40 days with them. Like, that's a long time to have a hallucination, right? <laughs> that's some pretty powerful stuff. Uh, <laughs> over 500 people claim to have seen the same sort of hallucination. Like, this isn't a hallucination. Or if it is, it's not the kind of hallucination that you and I think of, right? Okay, how do you explain the early church? Like, the most powerful empire in the world wants to stamp this thing out for over 300 years 
But the more it tries to crush it, the more it grows. And actually, it eventually becomes converted by Christianity. Like, how do you explain all this stuff? Like, how do you explain it? Like, whether or not you give a yes or a no to Jesus, you have to account for the historical evidence. Because if you're actually going to do mission and follow him, you need to know that it's actually true, or you should at least believe that it's true. And Acts is very much about the fact of what God does when he breaks into a certain time and place in history, becomes a real man with a real body, and dies to reconcile real people to himself. Because if that's true, then the Bible tells a story. And that story is one that we're trying to live here at RUF. It's one that we're trying to live in worship and community groups. And it's not just for us. Because if that story is true, then Christianity is for everyone. And the Bible's for everyone. That this is not a, a, just a private truth that I keep into myself. It's a public truth. It's universal like gravity and the color of the sky. It can't be a private opinion. And when we share it with people by inviting them to a place like RUF where they hear about Jesus, or to a place like church on Sunday, we are giving them an opportunity to know the truth about themselves and their true purpose in the world, like what they were actually made to do and live in and be. And that's a very good gift to give to somebody. If you're here and you think of yourself as a Christian, it means that you're put in the same place as the apostles, that you are part of the words and the deeds that Jesus began and has continued to do. That means that all of our stories, your personal story, the story of your family, of North Carolina, of the world, is part of this larger story that God is telling through Jesus and working out. That in the birth, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, the true purpose of humanity has been revealed and is to know Him and enjoy Him and to make Him known. And that's a very good thing. That's actually what you were made for. That's what we want to convince you of tonight. So that's the evidence for mission. What's the scope of mission? Look at verse 8 here. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Y'all, mission really has kind of two, two stages to it, an outward stage and an inward stage. First, think about this kind of outward stage. Look where Jesus has the disciples start, in Jerusalem. The place where they know the most people, where they get the culture, they get the language, they kind of are around this, they get it. That's where God has you start as well. Like social media can make us want to engage with the whole world, and we need to care about the whole world. But if you spend any time on it, you you start to feel overwhelmed by the amount of things that are going out in the world. But to be really effective in, in mission, you actually have to start with where you are. Focus local. There are all kinds of burning problems in Africa, in China, in downtown Durham. But those aren't the places where we live. At least not yet anyway. One day maybe you'll live somewhere like that. And how you, how you live there, I hope, is effective. But how will you be effective there if you aren't effective here? How will you live in those places in a missional way if you're not missional here? So we've got to start local and work our way out. Mission always starts with this kind of outward thing. And we cannot despise the day of small things. We need to love the people and the places that God has put right now in front of us. But mission is not just about what's happening out there. It's also inward, inside of you as well. Jesus says that we'll do this when we're witnesses through the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus gives you the Holy Spirit so that you can live life and live it to the full. But it's not a life that comes from you. It actually comes from Him and you are to bear witness to that. That the primary role of the Holy Spirit in your life is to witness in your heart to the love of Jesus. Which means we need to get really good at explaining why we need Jesus and what He's done for us. That's not to say that we don't need Christians in the arts or working in soup, soup kitchens or pregnancy crisis centers. Like We need those things. God is for those things. But mission always has a why. And the tendency of our hearts is to make that why about us. But Jesus hasn't called you to witness to how brilliant and hardworking you are. He's called you to tell people why you need him and what he's done. And then to love the world because he's loved you first. And there's a lot more that we could say about the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is part of this. And his primary role is not that you would know the future or perform miracles and be kind of like the Christian version of a Jedi Knight. Um, But the purpose of the Holy Spirit is that you would know who God is and what he's like. That his mission is that you would know God's love deep down in the very center of who you are. In the part of you that you're afraid to show to other people, in the part of you that you're afraid to look yourself, but that God knows about, that God would dwell with you in that place and you would know his love and the reality of his person and his work there in your heart. And that's the primary work of the Holy Spirit. Because otherwise your mission will always be about you and getting people to love you, having people follow you and your goals and your plans. And it will never be about God and his work. It will always be about us. And by nature, that is just all of our hearts. Mine especially. I think I'm probably the biggest narcissist in this room. But we need the Holy Spirit to constantly remind us He's loved you. He's died for you. He's reconciled you to Himself. When we were a stranger and alien, He cared for you. And that from that we would do mission and bear witness to what He is like and what He's done. I was uh, at the Notre Dame game last week, which is awesome. And going up in front of the Dean Dome, you can just, I'm always struck by how far away you can see it from. Like, it is just a truly massive, massive building. Like, I know I sound like a country kind of hick when I say that, but it's true. It's, oh, the biggest buildings ever. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it's really incredible how large it is. And as you get closer to it, like, you're, my eyes just drawn by the spotlights on the building. There's these huge, like, Volkswagen size lights they are taking all this energy and all this power and just shining on the front of this building and just making it clear to all these people that there's this massive, big, huge thing that should come and be a part of and see and come into. And y'all, the work of the Holy Spirit is that He takes the whole of His energy and His power and He directs it in your heart to show you the beauty and the power and the massive work of Jesus on your behalf. That you need that spirit to do mission in God's world and in God's way. So if that's the scope of mission, what's the hope of mission? What's the hope of mission? You know, when I was thinking about this sermon series, I just I wrestled some with it. Not because it's the Bible and I should teach the Bible. I'm very committed to that. But what I wrestled with in it was just the fact that you all have so much pressure on you. To look a certain way, to act a certain way, to do a certain thing. You have so much pressure falling on you. And I did not want to add pressure into that and make kind of the spiritualized pressure. 
Because this is a campus where that can happen. There was a long-term uh, study about perfectionism just came out. I literally read about it today. And it was taken from 1989 to 2016 and had all these kind of different metrics per- for perfectionism. And across the board, all of them were rising. But the largest rise was in what's called socially prescribed perfectionism, which I had no idea what that meant. But basically it means it's perfectionism that's characterized by feeling that others make big demands of me. Like, this is a campus where we feel like other people are making big demands of us all the time. Where we feel like we're making big demands of us all the time. And the last thing I want for you to hear as you come in here is for me to stand up here and for you to listen to sermon after sermon on missions and, not, and to think, you know, God is telling me I've got to perform harder. Like, we should definitely be thoughtful about how to love our neighbor. We should definitely do the hard work of engaging with UNC and loving this place in a transformational way. But where perfectionism can take us is can drive with those good things with a bad thing. They can drive us with this fear that I'm just not living up. Or I'm disappointing. Or I'm not good enough. Or I'm being left out. And what you need to drive those good things is not fear, but you need love. That that is the hope for mission. Is that in mission you really do have the love of a person that you need. The love of the person in the work of Jesus. And so to do mission you need to receive his love. And his assurance that runner's body or no or learning a foreign language or no, or being the kind of the social justice entrepreneur or no, that you are loved. That he doesn't judge you based on what you can or cannot do. In fact, he's already been judged for you, and you're judged based on what he's done. And your mission, first and foremost, in God's eyes, is not to do, but to become. Because mission is about transformation. It's about change. And that does involve things like reading the Bible or prayer or service or sharing the gospel. But those things are not an end in themselves. Those things are the means to the end of being with Jesus and becoming like him through his love. And of gathering the things that you see here and presenting them the whole of your life, the whole of your studies, the things you love here, gathering them and presenting them to him. You see, my hope for you is that you become someone who is holy and loving and wise, that one day you would be like this very sweet, old, kind of gray person. And people would look at you and say, I feel like when I see him or when I'm around her, I feel like I'm in the presence of someone who just knows love. Someone who knows Jesus. And that that would be a mark of God's work in your life. And that would actually be a very missional thing. But to get to that place, you've got to get over your fear that deep down, God doesn't really like me. That deep down, I've got to grind in order to get his smile. Do you know what would drive out that fear? God's work in your life. Like, it can feel like that we're listening to kind of two different radio stations at the same time. Like over here, there's this radio station that says, you know, you're amazing, you're awesome, nobody works harder than you, you're incredible, you're brilliant for being here. And then over here is this other station that says, you're a fraud. If anybody knew the real you, you know, they would kick you out of this place. And to that, we need to listen to God and his love. Because that is the real hope of mission. 
that God looks at you and says, you know, there are great things about you, and you're a sinner. But you're not judged. You're not loved based on you. You are loved based on me. You are judged based on my character, not on, not on what you've got. And we need to believe that. Like, to do mission, to be missional people, like, you've got to believe this stuff is true, but you've got to not just believe it up here, you've got to believe it here. That you need God's Spirit to make that real to you. Because mission says that God has changed you. Now go and be a witness to that change. That out of His love will flow mission. That there's a reason that the book of Acts, which is all about mission in the church, follows the Gospels. Because you and I need to know that Jesus died for us before we can do anything for Him. That's just the way it works. Because our hope cannot be in ourselves. Our hope has to be in Him and His love. That I can try mission and fail. I cannot try mission and be scared. Whatever I do, God will love me. Care for me. Be with me. Enjoy me. Celebrate me. Because your standing in front of Him is not based on you. It's based on what He's done. And that's our hope. So I want to end with this. Because I think part of this is just how hard it is to love, love people. And so we need to see God's love to love people. And so I do want to end with this. It's a story I heard recently. is a young dude uh, back in World War II. He had uh, been sent to Florida for this Navy boot camp. And he didn't have anything to do on his off days. And so he went to the library. And he, just, he picked out his favorite book and he starts to read it. And he's reading this book he starts to see that someone has written all these notes in the margins. And they're actually like really insightful and interesting and sometimes really funny. And he just like, he's enjoying reading the notes in the margins as much as he's enjoying reading the book. And so he kind of tracks down who was the last person to check this book out from this library. And they find, he finds out that it was a young woman named Hollis uh, Mainel. And he does some more search on her. I don't know how... You would find someone in the, the day and age before, like you could Insta stalk or Facebook stalk somebody, but somehow he does find this person. And she lives in New York. He's down in Florida. And he starts to write her letters. And she starts to write him letters back. And they, they start to have this kind of relationship through letter writing. And he, it's World War II, so he gets sent to the European front. And they're writing letters back and forth for over a year. And he's asking her, he's like, can you send me a picture of yourself so I can kind of know what you look like. <laughs> you know, again, before Instagram. Uh, <laughs> and she very wisely says, no. Like, you've got to write me letters and just like me for me, and I'm not going to send you a picture of, of what I look like. So pretty awesome lady from, right from the get-go. And he, that year kind of winds up, and he gets leave to come back to the States, and they kind of make this deal where he's going to be at Grand Central Station at 7 p.m., and he's going to be dressed in his, uh, his Navy kind of uniform. And she's going to have this like bright red rose on. And he's excited to get off this train. I mean, he's very, very ready to meet this woman that he's been writing letters to this whole time. And he gets off the train. And as soon as he gets off this train, this beautiful like blonde like comes this way. And she's wearing like, this bright kind of spring green dress. And... She, like, she looks beautiful. She smiles at him. She looks at him. She says, go on my way, sailor. I mean, literally, she says that. And he, he's, he feels torn in that moment because he's like, this lady is beautiful. 
but I'm here for this. And he looks, and he sees this very plain-looking middle-aged woman in, like, a brown dress and a brown hat and, like, brown shoes. And she's got this bright red rose in her lapel. And he's like, okay. <laughs> but he's an honorable guy. And so he doesn't say anything to the, to the lady in the green dress. Walks to the, to the woman with the rose in the brown, middle-aged. And he says, ma'am, I believe we've been writing letters back and forth to one another. And I would love to take you out to dinner tonight. And she looks back at him and she says, son, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> but that lady in the green dress told me to put this rose on my, my outfit. And that if you came over and asked me out to dinner, that I should tell you that she's at the cafe across the street. And, uh, <laughs> I know. I mean, I can just imagine, like, the dude's, the dude's draw just like, oh. <laughs> and I have no idea what happened with that, those two. But immediately, if I was that guy, I would be like, this woman knows men. <laughs> and I need to watch out. <laughs> it's an amazing story, right? It is. That's, I have a purpose for them. <laughs> and it's this. The Lord Jesus, he takes his love and he wears it and he invites us into it and we would go and we would run after him and do all these things for him. But he takes that love and he pins it on the most unlikely people. And he says, if you love me, you've got to love them. And if you worship me, then you've got to love these people. Hard to love people. Tough people, broken families, like systems of oppression and injustice where you've got to go in there, you've got to love people, and there's no guarantee that's going to work out. Like he takes his love and he pins that on them. And he says, if you respect me and love me, you've got to go in here and love those people. And I, I think about that and I just ask, like, are you looking for the rose? Or are you just looking for the best thing walking by? Like the most attractive way to spend your time. The next fun thing. The best way to build your resume. Or are you looking for his rose? Not because it's on the most beautiful thing, or the most beautiful people necessarily, but because he's given it and he wears it. Like you will find your life, and you'll find its purpose, and you'll find its glory when you lose your life. And you give it up for the people that God has placed his love upon. Like hard to love people. People that aren't the attractive people. If we love him, we'll follow him into those things because that's what he's done for us. You will do that when you know his love. You will do that when you believe this is true. And you will do that when he gives you his spirit. That's our invitation to you tonight. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, you are so good to us to give us your love, to delight in us, to sing it over us, to enjoy us. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to love the people you've put in front of us, that you would love the really broken places on this campus and help us to love them too. Lord, that we would love really broken people because we can see ourselves in, the, in them and know that we're broken, perfectionist. <laughs> Lord, help us to know your love. We know that we don't have the resources in ourselves to do that. 
But Lord, give us what we need to love and care for one another in this place. In your name we pray. Amen. We all stand.